Hello and welcome back to the Kielder Observatory podcast. I'm Ian Brannan and joining me once again in this episode will be Director of Astronomy Dan Pye and fellow astronomer at Kielder Observatory in Northumberland, Ellie MacDonald. And our special guest coming up later on is Dr. Jarita Holbrook, who's an American astronomer who's now at the University of Edinburgh's School of Social and Political Science. And one of the things that she's an expert in is uh, cultural astronomy, examining the relationship between humans and the night sky. It's just another level of understanding of the night sky that this is just, it's just random, that we just happen to see it looking this way. And um, probably as recent as 5,000 years ago, Orion didn't quite look the way that it looks now. More from Dr. Jarita Holbrook on the way a little later on in the programme. First of all, let's uh, start off by having a look at what's been happening at Kielder Observatory. In the astronomical world and the world of space in general, and also looking ahead to some of the things to look out for in the night sky as we round off 2022 and uh, take ourselves into a new year. What things can you be looking out for over the course of December in 2022? All that and much more to come. But first of all, welcome to Dan, Director of Astronomy. Dan, let's start by getting an update on the fundraising initiative that's been taking place over recent weeks, and that's to get a brand new additional wind turbine. Now, um, if you're not in the know, we've got um, an episode talking about the wind turbine from last month, but... Kielder Observatory not on the national grid and so we need to generate our own electricity we need another wind turbine to be able to help do that and uh, we've been asking for donations how's it coming along Dan? It's coming along very well in fact we're almost there we're £6,200 away from our target total and we've got to get there by the 17th of January otherwise we get nout. So £6,700 is what we need to achieve the final total. Right now, we're sat at just over uh, just over £25,000 has been raised so far, and that's been raised by incredibly kind donations by the general public, um, guests who visited the observatory, people who just love the story of what we're trying to achieve, and um, the rest of it has been propped up by um, some some great funding from the North of Tyne Combined Authority, North of Tyne Combined Authority, um, and Accenture um, as well, who've donated £7,500. So thank you to them. That's awesome. And so we're just that uh, little final leg to go now, but um, still a bit of time there. And if you want to get involved and contribute, however much, whether you can help out with the full many thousands that uh, are still needed or, or just uh, 10 or 15 quid or, or whatever you can afford, if you can afford it, then uh, you can get onto the Kielder Observatory website and find out um, the information there on, on how to donate. And of course, that will be greatly appreciated. And hopefully in the coming months, we'll be able to celebrate a brand new wind turbine um, uh, being installed. Um, something else that might be getting installed soon is a, a bit of an award uh, from the uh, Visit England people. It's a welcome accolade. Um, and of course, this is really something they give out to um, fairly diverse venues, isn't it? Something a little bit different. And um, Kielder Observatory has been chosen for one of these awards. Yeah, it has. And every year we get a, a Visit England visit from Visit England. And the uh, they score us on some really rigorous benchmarks. There's a lot of stuff that we have to do to put in place to make sure that we get um, a really good 
uh, review from Visit England and, and meet those benchmarks. So there is really high standards um, and we've consistently achieved really well with that. And, and this year, of course, yet yeah, we've, um, we've achieved um, more, the, more than previous years. So we qualified for this wonderful welcome award, which is wonderful to be acknowledged for the hard work that's gone into doing everything that we do on a daily basis. Everything that we do on a daily basis is such a difficult thing to put together. We have to constantly be on top of what's happening in the Astro community. We're there working late nights. We're teaching in schools. We're doing Zoom, um, z- delivering Zoom um, lessons and such as well to various different places. We're out in various different places across the northeast, and we don't. We only have a very small team who does all of this. There's only uh, ten of us really who, uh, uh, as part of the core team, who deliver all of the events that we do, and that's in excess of 652 events a year that we do at the observatory site and then all of the stuff that we do in schools as well there's always two people in schools each day of the week so it's it's just a great thing to 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 get recognized by these awards um and and great for team morale as well of course and there's been further awards as well because um, there were some uh, awards that happened recently, uh, Women in STEM Awards. And uh, it was the uh, the women of Kielder Observatory who collected this award. And um, a great night had had by all there and, and great recognition for, for the women in the team, of course, who uh, contribute so so much, but both behind the scenes, of course, but also, as you mentioned, in, in schools, at the observatory itself and, and, and delivering the the content, the education, and of course the the sessions for the guests as well. That's it, and 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 this is really something that I don't feel like I can really comment too much on about because I am a, a white male. <laughs> this is the stereotype of um, of of astronomy, and it always has been for a very long time. So being able to really shift that in the direction of yes, there are women who do STEM, there are women who work at observatories and do astronomy, and equally are as good as the males. This is a real boundary that has had to be broken over the last 50 years and has been done so incredibly well. Um, so we really do try and, and, and position ourselves as an organisation which celebrates that and, and creates these inspirational figures for the people who are, who are going through the schooling programme right now, right now to feel like they have a place within astronomy because for years and years and years that isn't how uh, an individual has felt from certain backgrounds. And so now... We're hoping to inspire that change through everything that we do. And that's why we have such a great, diverse workforce that work with us. Speaking of women in science, you recently as well had a visit from an actual astronaut, um, someone who's flown on the space shuttle twice. Susan Kilrain is uh, a former NASA astronaut and a uh, pilot of the space shuttle as well and uh, she paid a visit to Kielder Observatory uh, not so long back to to take a look around and she's um, on a bit of a mission at the moment spreading the the STEM word not just around the northeast but I think around the world and she's encouraging kids to get involved with uh, with science and and physics in particularly and uh, and she came up to Kielder. Yes we did and our lovely Ellie showed her around the observatory she had a great time and she found it really interesting to uh, to dive into some of the the interesting stuff that we've got on site at the observatory she came during the daytime which wasn't probably the best time to do some stargazing however it was cloudy anyway so it probably didn't matter that much (laughs) but she had a great time regardless yes let's have a look at what's happening around now in the world of space and um in november uh you may have seen this about the artemis launch which is has, has been 
something brewing for quite a while. Uh, there's been a few problems with the mission, but finally it launched. It launched successfully, and this really is the the the, the first era of the modern day Apollo missions, isn't it? Really, or, or what could be that? Because they're looking to get back to the moon, and Artemis has blasted off and has already sent some some stunning images back of of the moon's surface, which is something that we haven't seen particularly from space on a mission like this for quite some time. Yeah, it's amazing to be going back to the moon, and I don't think we've been really shouting and screaming about it as much as we could do because it's it's such an incredible thing to 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 achieve is this getting back to the moon, being able to take these images again and and paving the way for putting people back on the moon again in our lifetimes that hasn't happened well in my lifetime that hasn't happened um but if you were around in the early 70s then it has happened in your lifetime so you don't count in (laughs) in that statement but internally in terms of my lifetime i've never experienced anyone being on the moon anyone being near the moon or anything as such as this so it's it's such an, an astonishing feat for the future generations as well to inspire them to to go and um, become astronauts or whatever it might be. It's you, know, you can go to the moon now. You might be able to go to Mars at some point in the future as well. And of course, being on the moon gives us real hope in being able to make sure that we can make that possible in the future. Ways and means of being able to transport to the rest of our solar system become a lot easier from the moon. Ways and means of being able to understand our universe are much better from the moon as well. We can place um, scientific instrumentation on the moon and use it as a laboratory to discover things or to monitor things in deep space that we can't otherwise do from Earth or by putting a satellite into space. So these are uh, uh, great things to come from from the lunar missions and um, what an astonishing liftoff it was as well incredible to see it has taken a long time for it to to lift off eventually and there's been many technical issues which have been overcome and i think that's one of the biggest takeaways from a lot of this stuff in history is that actually by breaking these technology boundaries that's what's allowed us to progress in terms of our understanding of things in terms of our ability to be able to pass that on to the general public as well things like the pacemaker came as a way of being problem of of problem solving things in space things such as walkie talkies all of these things they come mobile phones these are trade-offs of our um, breaking the boundaries to to uh, problem solve things that we have to deal with when we get to space and i loved the launch day because on the launch day there was it still wasn't problem free there was a couple of issues um just before launch and it just sounded like somebody had ran up to the (laughs) up to this massive rocket stuck some duct tape on it and gone there you go see you later you'll be fine (laughs) (laughs) off it went (laughs) no it's fine (laughs) and of course there's this there's still the mission to mars ongoing as well and as you say that the the two could um potentially help each other out and and on that subject tying everything in nicely mars is going to disappear behind the moon in early december uh if you're up super early or super late depending on how you look at it uh five o'clock in the morning thereabouts uh, i think actually it's uh 4 57 to 5 57 on the 8th of december and we've got um, a rare treat of, of Mars disappearing behind the moon. And it should be visible with the naked eye, but um, visible even better if you've got something uh, that can magnify it. Yep. And Mars is a mere... When it, when it reaches that point, Mars will be 
about 34 million miles away from us. So it's it's pretty far away. And the moon, of course, is only a quarter of a million miles away, give or take its little fluctuations that it does, which is why the moon looks bigger than Mars in the sky. Just in case anybody was wondering um, how the Mars can disappear behind the moon, um, it's because Mars is further away. And as you get far away from things, they look smaller. Remember, we were taught that, and I say this many times, we were taught this by Father Ted in the 90s. When you get far away from something, it's smaller. <laughs> it's not that it physically is small. So Mars is, yes, for 34 million miles away. It's a long distance as well. I don't think we really appreciate how far that is, and we're trying to put people there. People on a place that doesn't have hardly any atmosphere left. People on a place that isn't really that warm internally anymore because it's of course given up geologically it's a dead planet and uh, its atmosphere has been stripped away by all of that dangerous radiation from the sun so you don't have the protection of a massive magnetic field on mars so not only in order to be able to live on mars do you have to um, really sort that problem out about being battered by solar radiation but you also have to figure out how to breathe and everything else on mars so there's a few issues with putting people on mars that i think that we don't often think about anyway i've kind of taken a little uh diversion into mars now (laughs) (laughs) but living on mars sounds an absolute nightmare so let's not uh, worry about the rush to get there because as you say there's there's no atmosphere and they're talking about living underground potentially quite a bit aren't they if if it if it ever did you know come off but I think we're a fair way off that, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Imagine being able to excavate Mars and try and live underground. It just sounds like uh, it sounds, it sounds like such a such a problematic process. That's, it seems like it would be just dreadful, dreadfully difficult to do. So the other things that are happening in the night sky this time of year, then a um, few planets visible, of course, Jupiter and, and Mercury around, aren't there? And what else is going on as we move through December? Got a full moon. Um, on the 8th of December. 8th of December is really exciting. Full moon, the Mars disappearing behind it, and um, of course it's at opposition as well, so it's its, it's its closest approach to Earth. And I love that Mars gets this close because it means that we're able to really uh, see the surface of this other world. And, and, and I know I say this quite a lot, and, I, and I'm sure I probably have on 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 the podcast as well is that I love seeing the surface of Mars because it is the only other world that you can see the surface of that isn't our little planet here and that just blows my mind so being able to see Mars at opposition is a certain must uh, attempt to do uh, when it gets there. Um, Geminids meteor showers coming up in December as well. Thirteenth to the fourteenth is the Geminids meteor shower. That's us going through the tail end of comet. Well, actually. This one's a bit weird because this is an asteroid known as Phaeton uh, or Phaeton. I, I always forget how you pronounce it. 3200 Phaeton or Phaeton or whatever it's called. Um, and it was discovered in 1982. And this shower, um, of course, we get every year as we move through the tail of debris that this little asteroid has left for us. So it's the only one. There's, I think there's only two of the meteor showers that we get through the year which are produced by an asteroid rather than a comet. So, yes, I think this may have been a comet in the past, but I'm not 100% sure of its of its history, um, to be honest, Phaeton. Um, but, yeah, so this one is uh, quite an active shower. Um, the, the difficulty here is that there's going to be a big bright moon in the sky. <laughs> so it's probably going to be not as, not, as, uh, not as good as it would have been had there have been no moon in the sky. 
Um, but still worth uh, worth keeping an eye out for the brighter ones. And then as we get into uh, later December, we've got uh, the Ursids meteor shower peaking on the 21st, 22nd. Might be a little bit better, that one. It is a minor shower, um, but you might see a couple or so uh, because we, we haven't got a big moon in the sky that night. Um, and Mercury is at its uh, greatest e- eastern elongation as well. So that's when it's best to see on uh, on an evening. So just as it gets dark, you should see Mercury in the western parts of your sky. Nice and low on the horizon, but you should see a little dot just after the sunset down there. And that's a cool thing to see because, of course, that's really close to the sun and we don't get to see that very often. OK, so there's a few things to look out for at this time of year, making the most of those uh, dark skies. And, of course, um, hopefully the, the star- skies will remain clear at those important dates as well fingers crossed but you can never can tell um and those are the things to be looking out for uh, dan if you were going to challenge any of our astronomers through the course of this next month if we do get a nice clear night and you want to give something to people to find look out for in the night sky in the universe somewhere uh, what would be your tip what's your challenge what's your what's your pie in the sky mission for december pie in the sky for december and between two, but I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you one. Um, I am going to task you with finding my favourite star. My favourite star. I might have done this last year, but it's worth having a look again this year because it's really cool. It's in the constellation of Cancer, and Cancer is rising up into our skies quite high now, reasonably. So we start to get into ten o'clock. That's where it's starting to get to a position where you may be able to see this. And what I want you to find is a star called HIP 43103. That's HIP 43103. Um, it actually does have an Arabic name, which I never knew. It's called Zubana. Zubana. Um, and that's the, the star that I want you to, to take a look at. It's a gorgeous star. It is actually not one star individually. It is two stars. And two stars are in binary and they're two different colours beautiful beautiful star to take a look at at this time of year about 300 light years away give it a go it's in the top of cancer the crab well that's something to look out for there's your pie in the sky mission for december let us know how you get on and you can let dan know in person if you're up there and he's he's on shift at Kilder observatory as well so there's something to look out for uh, right now then we'll move on to our special guest this month on the Kilder observatory podcast So our special guest in this episode is Dr. Jarita Holbrook. Now, Dr. Jarita Holbrook is currently of the University of Edinburgh School of Social and Political Science, studying astronomy and culture using methods drawn from anthropology and sociology, to name but a few. But her real love lies in the relationship between humans and the night sky, drawing on history, but also modern day fact as well. And she's produced some scientific publications on cultural astronomy, starburst galaxies and star 
formation regions and looking forward to having a chat uh, all about that and also the work with Astro Moves as well which brings gender and sexual diversity as well as hidden and visible uh, disabilities into dialogue when uh, navigating academic and non-academic careers and Dr Holbrook welcome to the Kielder Observatory podcast first of all I want to start by talking about your your big thing that you're known for your big passion and that is cultural astronomy and how the night sky relates to our understanding of cultures as formed cultures over the past because of course going back over centuries and thousands of years or more the night sky was such a a huge influence on cultures particularly those perhaps in far-flung parts of the world and that really has shaped the very fabric of their culture hasn't it that's right and it's more than just telling stories you know this is the difference between we can sit and tell stories about the night sky and we can, you know, reminisce about how other people, um, you know, talked about the night sky. But if you're going to actually do what I do, you have to theorize about all of these things. So you have to have hypotheses that you're testing and then you look at the historical record or, you know, anthropological record or you go out and talk to people to figure out if your hypotheses are true or not. I think that people are fascinated by religions that have emerged from the night sky that have a connection to the night sky. You know, sun worship, moon worship, sun and moon worship, star worship, um... You know, it's like this, the the uh, the sky was our entertainment at night. It was there, and we just, you know, projected ourselves onto the sky and made sense of our world through this connection between ourselves, the earth, and the sky. So, I mean, speaking about stories generally and looking up, I, I just wondered, do you have a favorite story? You know, International Year of Astronomy 2009, I ran a group called Cultural Astronomy and Storytelling Group. So I had to tell a lot of stories that year. So I'm very, very good at telling stories about the night sky. And one of my favorite ones, which kids love, kids love, is um, Coyote in the Night Sky, right? So uh, there's a time and and the the hazy dawn of time where where animals could talk to humans and humans could talk to animals and the great creator uh, had this blank slate of the night sky and decided to put stars in the night sky so he gathered up all the animals and all the humans and set them down and he had a bag full of stars and so he pull out a star and he'd say where do you think it should go and then he'd put the star in the sky. And then he'd get, pull out the next star. And it would be like a blue star, hot blue star. Where should it go? Let's put it right there. And uh, so this was going on. And Coyote, who is the trickster in the Southwest, you know, the troublemaker. Uh, he, but he makes things happen because he's the trickster, right? You have to have the kind of the bad guy who's really cheeky and, you know, sets the barn on fire. So, uh, so Coyote was sitting and going, okay, this is going, ah, this, ah, this is taking so long. So he grabs the bag and he throws it up in the sky and all the stars went in the sky. And that's why they're not nice patterns in the night sky because Coyote got frustrated and threw it all up in the sky. I have always wondered 
Yeah. <laughs> Why are there no patterns? So just thinking back to um, one of, of course, everyone knows our favorite constellations. One of my favorite constellations is Orion. And thinking about, you know, how Orion really does kind of look like a man, you know, uh, and it, it is a recognizable, recognizable figure with really bright stars and is visible both in the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. And you think about that shape and then if you once you start learning astronomy, you realize that those stars are nowhere near each other. You know, they're separated by light years and light years, you know, uh, and they just happen to be projected on the night sky that they look like that figure. And I just remember that moment going, oh, it's just another level of understanding of the night sky that this is just it's just random that we just happen to see it looking this way and um, probably as recent as 5,000 years ago Orion didn't quite look the way that it looks now right the same for a lot of the constellation because the stars are moving we're all you know in the Milky Way and we're moving and uh, and it's just the projection for now that we well, that we see some of these lovely constellations and some of the less lovely ones the total chaotic chaotic ones right yeah Yes, thank you, Coyote. With looking at the stars, I know you said that, um, you know, kids do have this, they just love space. Kids always love space. It's something we see a lot at the observatory. So do you have sort of a memory of when you first, like, looked at the sky and you saw it? Because I think we've all had that moment. All right, so I was born in the 1960s. And you know those, the VW bugs. We had a, a red VW bug. And you know that there's this little space that's behind the back seat and the window in a VW bug. And, you know, so it's, you know, the front seat, the back seat. And, and the weird thing is, of course, the trunk is in the front in a VW bug. But there's a space that's behind the back seat and before the end of the, the car. And... I was, must have been about two, and I could fit into that space. And so I was in that space, and my parents was, were, were driving home, and I was in that back space, just on my back, looking up at this amazingly dark sky. And I just remember getting my first sense of time while sitting there and looking at the night sky and thinking, oh, that moment when I was just looking at the night sky is gone. And this moment when I'm thinking about the night sky is gone. And this moment, you know, like it's already gone and I'm moving through time. And so I had the sense of moving through time and space and looking at the night sky and in the back of E.W. Bug. There you go. It's a lovely story. So once you finished your PhD and you studied star formation, I believe, in Orion. Not only Orion. You know, it was in the Orion Nebula, but I was mainly studying another Star formation region, which is GL2136, which nobody knows, right? So it's easy to say I studied Orion, right? <laughs> I think it's fair to say shifted focus towards cultural astronomy. And just, I wondered if you wouldn't mind giving a broad definition of it for people who don't know. Cultural astronomy is the study of people and their relationship to the night sky. So really you're studying people. And their response to the stimulus, which is the night sky. So how they see it, how they use it, how they think about it, how they put it in creative works. That's cultural astronomy. 
So I use the tools of anthropology to study people and their relationship to the night sky. My question really doesn't uh, doesn't cover any of what we've just really talked about. To be perfectly honest. <laughs> But it was more it was it was more of an observation actually than 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 anything than something that just occurred to me when I, when when Ellie came to us about uh, about us talking to you, which was um, that uh, there was a, a research study apparently done last year in the United States where sixty percent of the population are now believed to think uh, sorry to believe in uh, spiritual based religions rather than the Anglo Christian religion or whatever it might be. Um, so. And I found that really interesting that actually a lot of millennial Gen Z people are transitioning back to looking at the stars as a a source of their spiritual belief rather than um, going for the deity or anything like that. So I just wondered what you thought about that. Well, I think that's an interesting move. I'm not surprised because, you know, when, you know, when, when you have chaos, right? People tend to turn towards religion because of just the stress of and chaos of the world. You know, we've been in a pandemic. People have been dying and, and it's, there's no rhyme or reason. And, and um, one of my, my bid tours was a Africanist at UCLA named Chris Errett. And I used to sit in on his classes when he was teaching about Africa. And he, he talked about the problem of unfair death. How do you deal with the fact that good people, people who you would think are like, you know, angels on earth, good people die. And that's kind of the source of religion is how do you deal with unfair death? And we've been seeing a lot of unfair death because of the pandemic. And uh, so It makes sense that people would turn to a religion or create a new religion uh, because that's historically what humans do when they see things that are unjust and unfair. When good people die, then, yeah. So I think it's interesting that they're also moving away from sort of the the four religions, which um, I have personal opinions, opinions on that. I think that uh, the four major religions oppress women in a, a particular way, and that uh, that these moving to religions outside of the four open a space for women to have more agency and have a more, you know, proactive religious role than just you know serving the men, so to speak. So, um, so I would imagine that a lot, some of that is going so like a sort of feminist bent to moving away from the traditional religions. So, and also the, 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 like the traditional four religions are also, uh, used for colonization, right? And so we're having a decolonization move at the same time. And so if those religions are associated with the colonizer, it's also kind of decolonizing your religion to pick something else that's not the religion of one of your oppressors. The subjects of superstitions, and, and, and these are things that really tend to go back over the years, over the, over the centuries or, or longer. But tell us about some of the astronomical superstitions that, that certain cultures might have. You know, there's actually a Native American group that lives along the Colorado River, and I can't remember the name of it. Somebody, this is like somebody told me about this group where um, it's actually 
not okay to look at the sky. Like the sky is too powerful, so they they don't look at it. And uh, and so of course I, my next question was, but somebody's got to look at the sky. You know, the night. I'm, I'm, I don't mean the sky. I mean the night sky. Right? It's too powerful. They don't they don't look at it. So I never tr- tracked down that that bit of information. But I think that's very interesting. That you know we think of the 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 sky as you know something that we can look at freely. The sun is something we can't look at freely. But we think of the sky, you know, as something you can look at freely. But um, but there's that's not true of all cultures. So I haven't tracked it down, but I thought that was a very interesting one. Um, then there is, of course, uh, things that have to do with initiation. So uh, young women being initiated when Venus is in a certain position. And I, I haven't figured out when men, like, there's there's a lot of work that's done around women initiation in the sky, and uh, if you go back to uh, looking at Levi Strauss's work, uh, Claude Levi Strauss, who's an anthropologist, mythologist, um, so his 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 theory was that all all myths were about time, and the central conflict in most myths was the transition between matriarchy to patriarchy because women had a natural connection to both the sky and time because they menstruated every month, right? So they seemed to be in sync with the moon and therefore there was this agency, this connection between women and time and the moon that men didn't have. Right. And so, you know, it's it's very fascinating, this idea that, you know, women, women were the controllers of time. And I'm not sure if that's played out to the present. Um, But I just remember, you know, my studies of Levi Strauss and and trying to tease that out at one point in, in my career. You know, eclipses are strange and comets, comets are strange. Right. Meteor showers. Hmm. You know, because in a dark sky, you see like one meter every one meteor shooting by meteorite shooting by like every 10 minutes. So I think showers are not so strange. There was a guy named um, Stor Langerkrantz who wrote about uh, meteors and in in, uh, around the world, like and uh, and he talked about the various mythologies and superstitions around meteor showers and meteors, and you know, like it's carrying the soul. Somebody has died, um, and that was he was writing in the 1950s, so at least you know, 70 years ago, then um, that that was some of the beliefs that were still in, in circulation. So I'll I'll stop there. That's enough to chew on. To, to round off then, Jerita, um, tell us about, I think you've already told us about the work, the, the thing that you're working on at the moment, but if people want to find out more about the things that you are doing, or indeed, I think, and you were mentioning people from certain parts of society, maybe who have uh, struggled to get access to, to, to astronomy or to get into the world, that they, they may be listening to this and they may be, uh, you know, in their, in their homes wanting to get involved in the community and, and wondering how they get involved, what, what would be your advice for them? 
So, it, of course, it depends on, you know, the stage in their careers right now. Uh, if they're coming out of high school or if they ha already have a college degree or if, um, if they, you know, are about to retire. I've seen people enter astronomy and astrophysics from all of those positions. You know, even people from business have moved sideways into astrophysics. And there's a difference, but you have to know what your goals are before you get into astrophysics. Do you want to make a career of this? Or do you want to study this for a while because you're really interested? So the question is, do, do you want this to have a job? Do you want to have a job at the end? Or do, are you fine doing something else and just having another degree in astrophysics? So there's, there's several master's programs around the world that take, you know, any student who is pretty much interested in astrophysics and you can go there and you can transition, you can come out of the arts and decide I want to become an astrophysicist and they will give you all the scientific background. It may take you a long time, but they're, they're perfectly fine programs for, for transitioning you into becoming an astrophysicist if this is what you want. So a lot of people I've seen go through those master's programs and become, you know, not quite research astronomers, but they're telescope operators and work for observatories and things like that. So I would recommend that if you're a student, uh, lower level, but of course, you know, all the research in the UK is just horrifying how even the best students who are minorities are discriminated against. So just be aware that you're probably going to be discriminated against, but do your, you know, something mathematical based, physics or math or astrophysics as an undergraduate, and they will then train you up to becoming an astrophysicist. If you already have your first degree, then look for a master's program where they will take you as a student and transition you, and perhaps you'll go on to get a PhD afterwards. Um, and if you already have a science background, science or engineering background, you can think of a good astronomy question that you want to have answered. And you need to do your research and make sure that nobody else has asked the question on the objects you want to study. And you can propose a PhD program, you know, a PhD project around a question that can, you can take that to, that's the way Europe does it, right? That you... You have to have a, a an idea of what you want to do for your PhD, and then you kind of sell this idea idea to a professor, and then the professor will say, "Yeah, I'll take you on as a student to answer that question." In the U.S., you have to actually apply. You can say the research that you want to do, but you um, you have to take like the the, the GREs exams and then get into a U.S. university. Now, in South Africa, where I used to be a professor, there was a, a master's program, an honors and a master's program, which uh, you could apply to, and then you get your honors degree, and then you get a master's degree, and then from there you could get a, a PhD. And that was nationally run. Um, so it's easier in South Africa than it is almost anywhere else to make that transition. Okay, it's all uh, great advice. And uh 
Thanks for joining us once again, Dr. Drita Holbrook. If people want to find out more about you and keep up to date with the things that you're involved in uh, now and, and in the future, uh, how can people get in touch with you online and, and keep up to date with everything you're involved with? So I'm on social media, not very often, <laughs> under Astro Holbrook. It's A-S-T-R-O-H-O-L-B-R-O-O-K. So I'm Astro Holbrook on, um, on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, there, I have a Dr. Jarita Holbrook page on Facebook that you can follow the page. So if I'm, when I update, I update on, on all of those. So now I'm supposed to have a nice website, like this is Jarita Holbrook and she's doing it. Yeah, I don't have, <laughs> I haven't put that together. <laughs> I had one when I was living in South Africa, but I, I have not updated it. I've just, it's, it's really good to be busy. And also when I release the film, like whatever I re- release the film, that I have to update my media presence and, you know, post and all that stuff. So when I release the Astro Moon films, I'll probably update all all of that. Dr. Jarita Holbrook, our special guest this month on the Kielder Observatory podcast. And uh, as she mentioned, you can uh, follow her on LinkedIn. Just search for Jarita Holbrook or, or on Twitter, Astro Holbrook. Just a couple of ways that you can get in touch with uh, Dr. Jarita Holbrook of the University of Edinburgh's School of Social and Political Science. So, um, hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, there's plenty of previous episodes for you to check out uh, and you can learn all about many, many different things, even going back over some of the um, previous months or indeed previous years of our episodes. Whilst the time may well have moved on, as it tends to do, uh, some of the episodes are very much still in date because the universe doesn't move that quickly. Black Holes Explored was uh, a recent episode with Professor Martin Ward. If you've ever wondered what would happen if the Earth should fall into a black hole, wonder no more. Professor Martin uh, has all the information of what happens in black holes. Chris Lintot, the presenter of the BBC's Sky at Night, was a previous guest earlier this summer as well. And uh, we also recently caught up with uh, the Royal Astronomical Society celebrating their 200th anniversary. We spoke to Dr Robert Massey, who is, of course, a well-known figure from uh, news and uh, indeed the Sky at Night occasionally as well. So uh, just a few of the recent episodes of the many available on whatever podcast app you tend to use. And of course, keep up to date with everything happening at Kielder Observatory on our social media channels. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Search for Kielder Observatory. And the main website is your place to go for the big news and to book your upcoming sessions as well. The next year ahead is available to book now. So you can plan ahead for next summer's school holidays or whatever it is that you're going to be doing. If you're going to be in the Kielder area or Northumberland area, maybe you'd like to book ahead for one of our upcoming sessions. Get in there nice and early. There's plenty of opportunities over the coming year, uh, if not in the short term. Although keep an eye out on social media for cancellations because they do come in every now and again and they're always stuck straight onto social media, particularly Facebook, uh, if we do have any cancellations, short notice and you can make it and uh, thanks once again for joining us on the Kielder Observatory podcast we'll be back next month <laughs>